Hi, welcome to the peanut gallery. I'm the smart peanut, and yes, I am alone again, sadly. I miss my big peanut, Anna, very much, but she's working hard at her job almost every day for like nine hours. It's crazy. Um, But here I am. I'm going to try and bring a little bit of light into this boring, boring time, and also scary time because we have no idea what's going on. But um, people have been sending me Well, I have had two instances of people sending me book requests, and I would like them to know that I'm working on it. Um, I know, in particular, someone wanted me to read a Star Wars book. I do not have that particular Star Wars book, but I do have a collection of Star Wars short stories. So I figure I could do a couple of those. And to the other person who wanted me to read Brave New World, I will work on that for next time. But I have this book picked out, and it's one of my favorite books, and I really wanted to do it. So I'm sorry, (laughs) but you're going to hear a different book today. Um, It's a book from a sort of underground series called The Edge Chronicles. Uh, It's a fantasy novel, and it's just, it's so good. It's just so much fun, and it's such a good escape. And while there's danger and things like that, it's also extremely lighthearted. So um, I thought I would just give it a a bit of an introduction for you. Um, And yeah, (laughs) so I'm going to read the introduction and the first chapter of the book for you. I hope you enjoy. Stay safe. Uh, Try not to be bored. Try some new things. Do some new things. Read this book after I read you the first chapter. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But I hope you enjoy. Introduction. Far, far away, jutting out into the emptiness beyond, like the figurehead of a mighty stone ship, is the edge. A torrent of water pours endlessly over the lip of a rock at its overhanging point. The river here is broad and swollen, and roars as it hurls itself down into the swirling, misty void below. It is difficult to believe that the river, like everything else that is large and loud and full of importance, might ever have been any different. Yet the origins of the Edgewater River could scarcely be humbler. Its source lies far back inland, high up in the dark and forbidding deep woods. It is a small, bubbling pool, which spills over as a trickle and down along a bed of sandy gravel, little wider than a piece of rope. Its insignificance is multiplied a thousandfold by the grandeur of the deep woods themselves. Dark and deeply mysterious, the deep woods is a harsh and perilous place for those who call it home. And there are many who do. Wood trolls, slaughterers, guile goblins, termagant trogs, countless tribes and strange groupings scratch a living in the dappled sunlight and moon glow beneath its lofty canopy. It is a hard life and one fraught with many dangers. Monstrous creatures, flesh-eating trees, marauding hordes of ferocious beasts, both large and small. Yet it can also be profitable, for the succulent fruits and buoyant woods which grow there are highly valued. Sky pirates and merchant leagues men vie for trade and battle it out with one another high above the endless ocean green treetops. Where the clouds descend, there lie the edgelands, a barren wasteland of swirling mists, spirits, and nightmares. Those who lose themselves in the edgelands face one of two possible fates. The lucky ones will stumble blindly to the cliff edge and plunge to their deaths. The unlucky ones will find themselves in the twilight woods. Bathed in the never-ending golden half-light, the twilight woods are enchanting, but they are also treacherous. The atmosphere there is heady, intoxicating, Those who breathe it for too long forget the reason they ever came to the twilight woods. 
like the lost knights on long-forgotten quests who would give up on life if only life would give up on them. On occasions, the heavy stillness is disturbed by violent storms which blow in from beyond the edge, drawn to the twilight woods like iron fillings to a magnet, like moss to a flame, the storms circle the glowing sky, sometimes for days at a time. Some of the storms are special. The lightning bolts they release create storm fracks, a substance so valuable that it, too, despite the awful dangers of the twilight woods, acts like a magnet, like a flame, to those who would possess it. At its lower reaches, the twilight woods give way to the mire. It is a stinking, polluted place, rank with the slurry from the factories and foundries of Undertown, which have pumped and dumped their waste so long that the land is dead. And yet, like everywhere else on the edge, there are those who live here. Pink-eyed and bleached as white as their surroundings, they are the rummagers, the scavengers. A few serve as guides, steering their charges across the desolate landscape of poisonous blowholes and sinking mud, before robbing them blind and abandoning them to their fate. Those who do make their way across the mire find themselves in a warren of ramshackle hovels and run-down slums which straddles the oozing Edgewater River. This is Undertown. Its population is made up of all the strange peoples, creatures, and tribes of the edge world crammed into its narrow alleyways. It is dirty, overcrowded, and often violent. Yet Undertown is also the center of all economic activity, both above board and underhand. It buzzes, it bustles, it bristles with energy. Everyone who lives there has a particular trade, with its attendant league and clearly defined district. This leads to intrigue, plotting, bitter competition, and perpetual disputes. District with district, league with league, tradesmen with rival tradesmen. The only matter which unites all those in the League of Free Merchants is their sheer fear and hatred of the sky pirates who dominate the skies above the edge in their independent boats and prey off any haplets merchantmen whose path they cross. At the center of Undertown is a great iron ring to which a long and heavy chain, now taut, now slack, extends up into the sky. At its end is a great floating rock, like all the other buoyant rocks of the edge, it started out in stone gardens, poking up out of the ground, growing, being pushed up further by new rocks, growing beneath it, and becoming bigger still. The chain was attached when the rock became large and light enough to float up into the sky. Upon it, the magnificent city of Sanctifrax has been constructed. Sanctifrax, with its tall, thin towers connected by viaducts and walkways, is a seat of learning. It is peopled with academics, alchemists, and apprentices, furnished with libraries, laboratories, and lecture halls, refectories, and common rooms. The subjects studied there are as obscure as they are jealously guarded, and despite the apparent air of fusty bookish benevolence, Sanctifrax is a seething cauldron of rivalries, plot and counterplot, and bitter faction fighting. The deep woods, the edge lands, the twilight woods, the mire, and the stone gardens— Undertown and Sanctifrax, the River Edgewater, names on a map. Yet behind each name lie a thousand tales, tales that have been recorded in ancient scrolls, tales that have been passed down the generations by word of mouth, tales which even now are being told. What follows is but one of those tales. Chapter 1. The Snatchwood Cabin Twig sat on the floor between his mother's knees and curled his toes in the thick fleece of the Tilder rug. It was cold and drafty in the cabin. Twig leaned forward and opened the door of the stove. 
"'I want to tell you the story of how you got your name,' his mother said. "'But I know that story, mother mine,' Twig protested. Spelled aside, Twig felt her warm breath on the back of his neck and smelled the pickled tripweed she had eaten for lunch. He wrinkled his nose. Like so much of the food which the wood trolls relished, Twig found tripweed disgusting, particularly pickled. It was slimy and smelled of rotten eggs. "'This time it will be a little different,' he heard his mother saying. "'This time I will finish the tale.' Twig frowned. "'I thought I'd already heard the ending.' Spelda tussled her son's thick black hair. "'He's grown so fast,' she thought, and wiped a tear from the end of her rubbery button nose. "'A tale can have many endings,' she said sadly, and watched the purple light from the fire gleaming on Twig's high cheekbones and sharp chin. "'From the moment you were born,' she began, as she always began. "'You were different,' Twig nodded. It had been painful, so painful being different when he was growing up, yet it amused him now to think of his parents' surprise when he had appeared, dark, green-eyed, smooth-skinned, and already with unusually long legs for a wood troll. He stared into the fire. The luff wood was burning very well. Purple flames blazed all around the stubby logs as they bumped and tumbled around inside the stove. The wood trolls had many types of wood to choose from, and each had its own special properties. Scentwood, for instance, burned with a fragrance that sent those who breathed it drifting into a dream-filled sleep, while wood from the silvery turquoise lullaby tree sang as the flames lapped at its bark. Strange, mournful songs they were, and not at all to everyone's taste. And then there was the blood oak, complete with its parasitic sidekick, a barbed creeper known as terry vine. Obtaining blood oak wood was hazardous. Any wood troll who did not know his wood lore was liable to end up satisfying the tree's love of flesh, for the blood oak and the terry vine were two of the greatest dangers in the dark and perilous deep woods. Certainly the wood of the blood oak gave off a lot of heat, and it neither smelled nor sang, but the way it wailed and screamed as it burned put off all but a few. No, among the wood trolls, luffwood was by far the most popular. It burned well, and they found its purple glow restful. Twig yawned as Spelda continued her story. Her voice was high-pitched but guttural. It seemed to gurgle in the back of her throat. "'At four months you were already walking upright,' she was saying, and Twig heard the pride in his mother's words. Most wood troll children remained down on their knuckles until they were at least eighteen months old. "'But,' Twig whispered softly, drawn back inside the story despite himself, he was already anticipating the next part. It was time for the but. Every time it arrived, Twig would shudder and hold his breath. But, she said, although you were so ahead of the others physically, you would not speak. Three years old you were, and not a single word. She shifted round in her chair, and I don't have to tell you how serious that can be. Once again, his mother sighed. Once again, Twig screwed up his face in disgust. Something tag-haired once said came back to him. Your nose knows where you belong. Twig had taken it to mean that he would always recognize the unique smell of his own home, but what if he was wrong? What if the wise old oak elf had been saying, in his usual roundabout way, that because his nose didn't like what it smelled, this was not his home? Twig swallowed guiltily. This was something he had wished so often as he lay in his bunk after yet another day of being teased and taunted and bullied. Through the window, the sun was sinking lower in the dappled sky. The zigzag silhouettes of the deep wood pines were glinting like frozen bolts of lightning, Twig knew there would be snow before his father returned that night. He thought of Tuntum, out there in the deep woods far beyond the anchor tree, perhaps at the very moment he was sinking his axe into the trunk of a blood oak. Twig shuddered. His father's 
felling tales had filled him with deep horror on many a howling night. Although he was a master carver, Tun-Tum Snatchwood earned most of his money from the illicit repair of the Sky Pirate's ships. This meant using buoyant wood, and the most buoyant wood of all was blood oak. Twig was never certain of his father's feelings toward him. Whenever Twig returned to the cabin with a bloodied nose or black dyes or clothes covered in slung mud, he wanted his father to wrap up him up in his arms and soothe the pain away. Instead, Tum-Tum would give him advice and make demands. "'Bloody their noses,' he said once. "'Black their eyes. And throw not mud, but dung. Show them what you're made of.' Later, when his mother was smoothing Hyleberry salve onto his bruises, she would explain that Tum-Tum was only concerned to prepare him for the harshness of the world outside. But Twig was unconvinced. It was not concern he had seen in Tum-Tum's eyes, but contempt. Twig absentmindedly wound a strand of his long, dark hair round and round his finger as Spelda went on with her story. "'Names,' she was saying. "'Where would we wood trolls be without them? "'They tame the wild things of the deep woods "'and give us our own identity. "'Ne'er sip of a nameless soup, as the saying goes. "'Oh, Twig, how I fretted then. "'At three years old, you were still without a name.' "'Twig shivered. "'He knew that any wood troll who died without a name "'would be doomed to an eternity in open sky. "'The trouble was that until an infant had uttered its first word, "'the naming ritual could not take place.' "'Was I really so silent, mother mine?' said Twig. Spelda looked away. "'Not a single word passed your lips. "'I thought perhaps you were like your great-grandfather Weasel. "'He never spoke either,' she sighed. "'So on your third birthday I decided to perform a ritual anyway. "'I—' "'Did great-grandfather Weasel look like me?' Twig interrupted. "'No, Twig,' said Spelda. "'There has never been a Snatchwood, nor any other wood troll who has ever looked like you.' Twig tugged at a twist of his hair. "'Am I ugly?' he said. Spelda chuckled. As she did so, her downy cheeks puffed out, and her small, charcoal-gray eyes disappeared in folds of leathery skin. "'I don't think so,' she said. She leaned forwards and wrapped her long arms around Twig's chest. "'You'll always be my beautiful boy,' she paused. "'Now, where was I?' "'The naming ritual,' Twig reminded her. He had heard the story so often— he was no longer sure what he could remember and what he had been told. As the sun rose, Spelda had taken the well-worn path which led to the anchor tree. There she tethered herself to its bulky trunk and set off into the dark woods. This was dangerous not only because of the unseen perils that lurked in the deep woods, but because that there was always a chance that the rope would snag and break. Woodtroll's deepest terror was being lost. Those who did stray from the path and lose their way were vulnerable to attacks from the Gloam-Glauser, the wildest of all the creatures in the deep woods. Every wood troll lived in constant terror of an encounter with the fearsome beast. Spelda herself had often frightened her older children with tales of the forest boogeyman. "'If you don't stop being such a naughty wood troll,' she would say, "'the gloam glossler will get you!' Deeper and deeper into the deep woods Spelda went. All round her the forest echoed with howls and shrieks of concealed beasts. She fingered the amulets and lucky charm around her neck and prayed for a swift and safe return." Finally, after getting to the end of her tether, Spelda pulled a knife, a naming knife, from her belt. The knife was important. It had been made especially for her son, as knives were made for all the wood troll children. They were essential for the naming ritual, and, when the youngsters came of age, each one was given his or her individual naming knife to keep. Spelda gripped the handle tightly, reached forwards, and, as the procedure demanded, hacked off a piece of wood from the nearest tree. It was this little bit of deep wood which would reveal her child's name. Spelda worked quickly. 
She knew only too well that the sound of chopping would attract inquisitive, possibly deadly, attention. When she was done, she tucked the wood under her arm, trotted back through the woods, untied herself from the anchor tree, and returned to the cabin. There she kissed the piece of wood twice and threw it into the fire. "'With your brothers and sisters, their names came at once,' Spelda explained. "'Snodpill, Henchweed, Poosniff, clear as you like. But with you, the wood did nothing but crackle and hiss. The deep woods had refused to name you.' "'And yet I have a name,' said Twig. "'Indeed you have,' said Spelda. "'Thanks to Taghair.' Twig nodded. He remembered the occasion so well. Taghair had just returned to the village after a long spell away. Twig remembered how overjoyed the wood trolls had all been to see the oak elf back among them. For Taghair, who was well-versed in the finer points of wood lore, was their advisor, their counselor, their oracle. It was to him that the wood trolls came with their worries. "'There was already quite a gathering beneath his ancient lullaby tree when we arrived,' Spelda was saying." Taghair was sitting in his empty caterbird cocoon, holding forth about where he had been and what he had seen on his travels. The moment he saw me, however, his eyes opened wide and his ears rotated. "'Whatever's up?' he asked. And I told him. I told him everything. "'Oh, for goodness sake, pull yourself together,' he said. Then he pointed to you. "'Tell me,' he said. "'What is that round the little one's neck?' "'That's his comfort cloth,' I said. I won't let anyone touch it, and he won't be parted from it neither. His father tried once, said the boy was too old for such childish things, but he just curled up into a ball and cried and cried till we gave it back to him. Twig knew what was coming next. He had heard it so many times before. Then Taghair said, Give it to me, and stared into your eyes with those big black eyes of his. All oak elves have eyes like that. They can see those parts of the world that have remained hidden to others. "'And I gave him my comfort cloth,' whispered Twig. "'Even now he didn't like anyone touching it, "'and kept it tightly knotted around his neck. "'That you did,' continued Spelda, "'and I can scarce believe it to this day, "'but that wasn't all. Oh, no.' "'Oh, no,' echoed Twig. "'He took your cloth and sort of stroked it all gentle-like "'as if it was a living thing, "'and then he traced the pattern on it with his fingertip ever so lightly. "'A lullaby tree,' he said at last, "'and I saw that he was right.' I'd always thought it was just a pretty pattern, all those squiggles and little stitches, but no, it was a lullaby tree, all right, plain as the nose on your face. Twig laughed. And the strange thing was, you didn't mind old tag hair touching your cloth. You just sat there, all serious and silent. Then he gave you the stare of his again, and said in a soft voice, You're part of the deep woods, silent one. The naming ritual has not worked, but you are part of the deep woods. A part of the deep woods, he repeated his eyes glazing over. Then he raised his head and spread wide his arms. His name shall be... Twig, Twig exclaimed, unable to keep silent a moment longer. That's right, said Spelda, laughing. Out you came with it, just like that. Twig, the first word you ever spoke. And then Taghir said, You must look after him well, for this boy is special. Not different, but special. It was the one fact that had kept him going when the other wood troll children had picked on him so mercilessly. Not a single day had passed without some incident or other, but the worst time of all was when he'd been set upon during the fateful trockbladder match. Before then, Twig had loved the game. Not that he was very good at it, but he had always enjoyed the excitement of the chase, for trockbladder was a game that involved a great deal of running about. It was played on a large square of land between the back of the village and the forest. The pitch was crisscrossed with well-worn paths beaten out by generations of young wood trolls. Between these bare tracks, the grass grew thick and tall— the rules of the game were simple. There were two teams, with as many wood trolls on each side as wanted to play. The aim was to catch the trockbladder. 
the bladder of a hammerhorn stuffed with dried truck beans, and run twelve paces, calling out the numbers as you went. If you managed that, you were allowed to shoot at the central basket, which could double your score. However, since the ground was often slippery, the truck bladder was always squidgy, and the entire opposing team was trying to wrest the ball away, this was not as easy as it sounded. In his eight years of playing the game, Twig had never once managed to score a truck bladder. On this particular morning, no one was having much luck. Heavy rain had left the pitch waterlogged, and game kept stopping and starting as, time after time, wood troll after wood troll came sliding off the muddy paths. It wasn't until the third quarter that the truck bladder landed near enough to Twig for him to seize it and start running. One, two, three, he yelled out as, with the truck bladder wedged beneath the elbow of his left arm, he belted along the path which led to the center of the pitch. The nearest to the basket you were when you reached twelve, the easier it was to score. Four, five, in front of him were half a dozen members of the opposing team were converging on him. He darted down a path to the left. His opponents chased after him. Six, seven, to me, Twig, to me, various members of his own Twig called out. Pass it! But Twig didn't pass it. He wanted to score. He wanted to hear his teammates' cheers, to feel their hands slapping him on the back. For once, he wanted to be hero. Eight, nine, he was completely surrounded. Pass it to me, he heard. It was hotter gruff, calling from the far side of the pitch. Twig knew that if he chucked the ball to him now, his friend would have a good chance of scoring for the team. But that was no good. You remembered who scored, not who set up the goal. Twig wanted everyone to remember that he had scored. He paused. Half of the opposing team were almost upon him. He couldn't go forwards. He couldn't go back. He looked around at the basket, so near and yet so far, and he wanted that goal. He wanted it more than anything. All at once, a little voice in his head seemed to say, "'What's the problem? The rules say nothing about sticking to the path.' Twig looked back towards the basket and swallowed nervously. The next instant, he did what no wood troll before had ever done. He left the path. The long grass whipped at his bare legs as he loped towards the basket. Ten, eleven, twelve, he screamed, and dunked the bladder down through the basket. A truck bladder, he cried, and looked around happily. A twenty-four-pointer! I've scored a truck— He stopped. The wood trolls on both teams were glaring at him. There were no cheers, no slaps on the back. You step from the path, one of them shouted. No one steps from the path, cried another. But, but, Twig stammered, there's nothing in the rules that says... But the other wood trolls were not listening. They knew, of course, that the rules didn't mention keeping to the paths. But then why should they? In Trockbladder, as in their lives, the wood trolls never strayed from the paths. It was a given. It was taken as red. It would have made as much sense as to have a rule telling them not to stop breathing. All at once, as if by some prearranged signal, the wood trolls fell on Twig. You lanky weirdo, they cried as they kicked and punched him. You hideous gangly freak! A sudden fiery pain tore through Twig's arm. It felt as if it had been branded. He looked up to see a wadge of his smooth flesh being viciously twisted by a handful of hard spatula fingers. Hottergruff, Twig whispered. The Snatchwoods and the Gropenauts were neighbors. He and Hottergruff had been born within a week of each other and grew up together. Twig had thought they were friends. Hottergruff sneered and twisted the skin round still further. Twig bit into his lower lip and fought back the tears. Not because of the pain in his arm, that he could bear but because Hottergruff had now also turned against him. As Twig stumbled home, battered, bruised, and bleeding, it was the fact that he'd lost his only friend that hurt most. Now, because he was different, he was also alone. "'Special,' said Twig, and snorted. "'Yes,' said Spelda. "'Even the Sky Pirates recognized that fact when they saw you,' she added softly. "'That is why your father—' Her voice faltered. "'Why we—that is why you must leave home.' Twig froze. Leave home? What did she mean? He spun around and stared at his mother. She was weeping. 
I don't understand, he said. Do you want me to go? Of course I don't, Twig, she sobbed. But you'll be thirteen in less than a week, an adult. What will you do then? You cannot fell wood like your father. You, you're not built for it. And where will you live? The cabin is already too small for you, and now the, the sky pirates know about you. Twig twisted the knot of his hair round and round his finger. Three weeks earlier he had gone with his father far into the deep woods, where wood trolls felled and fashioned the wood that they sold to the sky pirates. Whereas his father could walk upright beneath the lowest branches, Twig had had to stop, stoop, and even that wasn't enough. Time and again he knocked his head, until his scalp had become a mass of angry red grazes. In the end, Twig had had no option but to crawl on his hands and knees to the clearing. "'Our latest felling recruit,' Tuntum had said to the sky pirate in charge of delivery that morning— the pirate glanced over his clipboard and looked Twig up and down. "'Looks too tall,' he said, and went back to his paperwork. Twig stared at the sky pirate. Tall and upright, he looked magnificent with his tricorn hat and tooled leather breastplate, his wings and waxed side whiskers. His coat was patched in places, but was, with its ruffs, tassels, golden buttons, and braid, nonetheless splendid for that. Each of the numerous objects that hung from his special hook seemed to shout of adventure." Twig found himself wondering who the Sky Pirate had fought with that cutlass, with its ornate jeweled hilt, and what had caused the nick in its long, curved blade. He wondered what marvels the Sky Pirate had seen through his telescope, what walls he had scaled with the grappling irons, what distant places his compass had led him to. Suddenly the Sky Pirate looked up again. He caught Twig staring at him and raised a quizzical eyebrow. Twig stared at his feet. "'Tell you what,' the Sky Pirate said to Tum-Tum. "'There's always a place for a tall young man on a skyship.' No, said Tum-Tum sharply. Thank you very much for the offer, he said politely, but no. Tum-Tum knew his son wouldn't last ten minutes on board ship. The Sky Pirates were shiftless, shameless rogues. They would slit your throat as soon as look at you. It was only because they paid so well for the buoyant deepwood timber that the wood trolls had anything to do with them at all. The Sky Pirate shrugged. Just a thought, he said, and turned away. Pity, though, he muttered. As Twig crawled back through the deep woods behind his father, he thought of the ships he had watched flying overhead, sails full, soaring off, up and away. Sky-riding, he whispered, and his heart quickened. Surely he thought there are worse things to do. Back in the wood troll cabin, spelled it thought otherwise. Oh, those sky pirates, she grumbled. Tuntum should never have taken you to meet them in the first place. Now they'll be back for you, as sure as my name spelled as Snatchwood. But the sky pirate I saw didn't seem bothered whether I joined the crew or not, said Twig. That's what they pretend, said Spelda. But look what happened to Hobblebark and Hogwart. Seized from their beds there were, and never seen again. Oh, Twig, I couldn't bear it if that happened to you. It would break my heart. Outside, the wind howled through the dense deep woods. As darkness fell, the air was filled with sounds of the wakening night creatures. Fromps coughed and spat, quorms squealed, while the great bander bear beat its monstrous hairy chest and yodeled to its mate. Far away in the distance, Twig could just make out the familiar rhythmical pounding of the slaughterers, still hard at work. "'What am I to do, then?' Twig asked softly. Spelda sniffed. "'In short term, you're to go and stay with Cousin Snedderbark,' she said. "'We've already sent a message, and he's expecting you, just until things blow over,' she added. "'Sky willing, you'll be safe there.' "'And after?' said Twig. "'I can come home again then, can't I?' "'Yes,' said Spelda slowly. Twig knew at once that there was more to come. But, he said, Spelda trembled and hugged the boy's head to her chest. Oh, Twig, my beautiful boy, she sobbed. There's something else I must tell you. Twig pulled away and looked up at her troubled face. There were tears rolling down his cheeks now. What is it, mother mine? he asked nervously. 
Oh, lone glosser, Spelda cursed. This isn't easy, she looked at the boy tearfully. Although I have loved you as my own since the day you arrived, you are not my son, Twig, nor is Tuntum your father. Twig stared in silent disbelief. Then, who am I? he said. Spelda shrugged. We found you, she said, a little bundle all wrapped up in a shawl at the foot of our tree. Found me, Twig whispered. Spelda nodded, leaning forwards, and touched the cloth knotted at Twig's neck. Twig flinched. My comfort cloth, he said, the shawl? Spelda sighed. The very same, she said. The shawl we found you wrapped in. The shawl you won't be parted from, even now. Twig stroked the fabric with trembling fingers. He heard Spelda sniff. Oh, Twig, she said. Although we are not your parents, Tuntum and I have loved you like our very own. Tuntum asked me to say goodbye for him. He said... She stopped, overwhelmed with sadness. He said to tell you that whatever happens, you must never forget... He loves you. Now that the words were said, Spelda abandoned herself to grief completely. She wailed with misery. Uncontrolling sobs racked her entire body. Twig knelt across him and wrapped his arms right around his mother's neck. So I am to leave at once, he said. It's for the best, Spelda said. But you will return, Twig, won't you? She added uncertainty. Believe me, my beautiful boy, I didn't ever want to have to tell you the end of the tale, but... Don't cry, said Twig. This isn't the end of the tale. Spelda looked up and sniffed. You're right, she said, and smiled bravely. It's more of a beginning, isn't it? Yes, that's what it is, Twig. A new start. And that is the end of chapter one. I did not realize how long it was when I started reading, but I feel like you get so absorbed in it, you just have to keep reading. At least for me, I did. I hope it doesn't pour you too much. <laughs> um, but... I really enjoy that book, and I encourage you to give it a try if you can. Um, it's part of the Edge Chronicles. It's called Beyond the Deep Woods by Paul Stewart and Chris Riddle. Um, it's it's just, I know the first chapter is quite sad and emotional, but the rest of it is just fun adventure, and I extremely enjoy it. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to me read once again. Um, hopefully soon me and Anna can get together or find some way to record because I am definitely missing her voice right now and I'm sure you guys are too. I'm sure you just don't want to listen to me read forever and ever so I'm going to assure you this isn't permanent but I will say we have at least two more episodes coming of this because there are two books that I have to read and then who knows. The future is a mystery I hope you enjoyed. I hope you have a good week, good day, good night, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I hope it's good. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye.